This is the first Sunday evening of the month, and at that time I address questions that have been submitted by members of the congregation. And um, let me begin by pointing out that I think some questions indicate a deep level of spiritual thinking. I believe some people are sitting back and saying, now, I really want to talk about, I want to study about some things that have some application to our lives, some very practical points that need to be discussed. And I will tell you that when there are questions of that kind, they do deserve a a well-reasoned, well-thought-out answer. And whenever our Lord was asked questions that were of a serious nature, He addressed them in that way. You know, in Luke chapter 21, verses 6 through 8, as He was talking about what was going to happen to the city of Jerusalem, it says, The things which you see, the days come in which not one stone will be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. So they asked Him, Teacher, but when will these things be? And what will be the sign that these things are about to take place? And he said, Take heed that you do not be deceived, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, or the time is drawn near. Therefore, do not go after them. They ask a very sincere question. Lord, we want to know when this is going to happen. And the Lord's response to them was, Be careful. There are people who will try to deceive you, try to change things, and... You don't let them do that. And so the Lord addressed it. But now there's other questions that are asked, and those questions were in seeking to entrap the Lord, trying to get Him to say something so they say, Aha, we got you. Uh, Matthew chapter 12, verse 10 says, There was a man who had a withered hand, and they asked him, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Now here's why, that they might accuse him. They look for an opportunity. You go to chapter 20, verses 20 and 21, and it says, So they watched him, sent spies who pretended to be righteous. But I want to tell you the questions that I've gotten tonight I think are sincere. They are questions which deal with some very serious matters. And so we're going to address the first question. What is the, and I put it in quotation, the age of accountability? The age of accountability. And when you ask that question, I think it also has to have some other questions that go along with it. Some things which are going to make us study the scriptures to understand. And that is, when does one become a sinner? At what point in life do you become a sinner? Number two, how much of must one know before he obeys the gospel? Do I need to know everything that's in the New Testament? Do I need to know only that I believe in Christ? What are some things I need to know? Let's consider some things first. There are two views with regards to the state of children. I'm talking about children that that are coming up and even some that are toddlers. The first view is, is that those children were born in sin. Those people who teach that teach that not only were they born in sin, they inherited the guilt of their parents' sin and inherited a sinful nature. That is primarily known as the doctrine of Calvinism. I was also asked a question, but I could not address it in a lesson with others. But it was about what is Calvinism and what does it really teach? 
I'll have to do that in a future lesson. But let me point out that's one tenet of Calvinism. Or the other is, is that a person becomes sinful by willful choices. You know what you're doing, you choose to do what's wrong, and you understood what you were choosing. Well, let's ask the question, are children born sinful? If you were discussing with a person who maybe is a member of a denominational church that holds the Calvinism, they'll say, yes, the Bible teaches children are born in sin. Listen to David in Psalm chapter 51 in verse 5 and then chapter 58 in verse 3. And David said, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. Now listen carefully. They would say, I was brought forth born in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. Some people say, well, you don't understand. He's not talking about there that uh, he was brought forth, but his mother conceived him out of wedlock or his mother did this or did that. But when you get to Psalm 58, verse 3, the wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray as soon as they are born, speaking lies. I've had a number of conversations with people who believe that you are born in sin. And these are the two verses to which they will appoint most often. And they would say, see there what David is saying. And then I always come back and say, look at the context. These are where David is pouring out his soul and he is trying to explain how badly he feels. And David is trying to use hyperbole. And then I would say, but you don't believe the Bible contradicts itself, do you? And obviously the answer is no, the Bible doesn't contradict itself. Well, let's go and look at some of the other things written in the book of Psalms. Psalms 106, and look at verses 37 and 38. They even sacrificed their sons and their daughters to demons and shed innocent blood. The blood of their sons and their daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan, and the land was polluted with blood. He said their blood was not guilty, their blood was not tainted, their blood was innocent. When David was told that the child that he and Bathsheba had conceived would die, David was so distraught before the death of the child, but when it was told David the child had died, it says, but now he is dead, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? And listen carefully. I shall go to him but he shall not return to me. I will go to where the child is. David has his heart, his mind, his soul on going to eternity to be with that innocent child that was born. Luke 18, verse 16, But Jesus called it to them and said, Let the little children come to me, and do not forbid, forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of God. You can look at passage after passage after passage and you come away with a full understanding that children are not born in sin, nor are they born with a sinful nature, but they become sinners when they choose to sin. And so children become sinful by sinful choices. 1 John 3 verse 4, whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness. 
Sin is lawlessness, or the King James, sin is a transgression of the law. 1 John chapter 3, verses 6 and 7. Whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. Righteousness and sin is by what a person practices. If you choose to violate God's law, then you are a sinner. You choose to, to obey God's law, and then you are righteous. But the passage that I think is so clear, one that you cannot misunderstand, in Ezekiel chapter 18, there was a proverb that had been used that people said the father eats sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. And the response to that is very plain. The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not bear the guilt of the father. The father bear the guilt of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. So I am not guilty of my father's sins, nor do I bear the guilt of their sins, nor do my children bear the guilt of my sins. You see, it is a choice that a person makes. Now that's really important. It is establishing when a person becomes a sinner. But the next is, at what stage does a child become responsible for the choices they make? Well, let's look at a couple of verses which I think can be helpful. In Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 39, Moreover, your little ones and your children who you say will be victims, who today, now listen carefully, who have no knowledge of good and evil, they shall go in there, to, and to them I will give it, and they shall possess it. You see, the children of Israel, as they were brought up to the edge of the promised land, did not get to inherit it because they rejected it. But God said, your children. And here's how he described them. These children who don't even yet know the good from the evil. There's a time in which children are not capable of deciding good from evil. Now, the passage that Brother Ricky read for us just a few moments ago from Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 16 is picturing the invasion that's going to take place by these foreign kings. And he says, Before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good that you dread, the land that you dread will be forsaken by both their kings. Notice, before the child knows to choose, refuse the evil and choose the good. There's a time in which children do not have the mental capacity nor the moral direction to be able to know what to do in refusing evil and choosing good. Well, what are some things that one must know in order to obey the gospel? You see, if, you, if you're going to say there's a, a time in life when they don't really know the difference between right and wrong, and you say here's what a person must do to obey the gospel over here, what do you really have to understand well, I'm trying to point out this is not a checklist. That you go down through the, okay, got that one, check. All right, got that one, check. But these are things that you comprehend, that you understand. 
for instance, to know and believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. To know that has to involve some mental understanding. You remember John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. There's evidence there. You take a three-year-old child and you try to present evidence to them that Jesus is the Christ. They may believe what you say, but there's got to be some mental faculties going on processing the fact that you yourself believe that Jesus is the Christ. In Acts 8, verses 36 and 37, you have the eunuch from Ethiopia. So they went down the road, they came to some water, and eunuch said, see, here's water, what hinders me from being baptized? And then Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. You want to be able to be baptized, you've got to believe that Jesus is the Christ. But a person also has to have the capacity to have sin, number one, to choose, but then they have to have the capacity, the mental ability to understand I've got to change. In Luke 13, there was an illustration given to Jesus about the people on whom the Tower of Siloam fell. And there was another of a group of people whom Pilate had mixed their uh, blood with the sacrifices. And the question was, were these sinners more than others? And the response was very simple. I tell you, no, unless you repent... You shall all likewise perish. Is there some correlation between sin and suffering? We've talked about that in our discussion of the book of Job. Now let me illustrate it very well when you get to the book of Acts chapter 2. When the people had seen this phenomenon, people speaking in other languages... They wanted to know what was going on. And beginning with Acts chapter 2, verse 17, there was a lesson preached to them about Jesus. About God didn't leave him in the tomb, but brought him back out. His flesh didn't see corruption. His soul didn't remain in Hades. And then the conclusion in verse 36, Let all the house of Israel know, therefore, assuredly, that this same Jesus, whom you've crucified, God has made him both Lord and Christ. Whom you killed, that's the Lord, that's the Christ. They wanted to know what to do, and here's Peter's response. Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That means, number one, you have to understand that you've sinned. Number two, you've got to understand you're responsible for that. And number three, you've got to do something about it. The people on the day of Pentecost understood that. You have a person who wants to obey the gospel. They've got to know, number one, what they've done, and number two, that they're responsible for it. And then what they've got to do is to repent and to be baptized. And then a person has to be willing to confess. That means to acknowledge their uh, faith in Christ. Matthew 10, 32, Therefore, whoever confesses me before men... Him will I confess before my Father who is in heaven. 
Now you can say, well, you've danced all the way around that topic, and now let's get to the point. At what age does one become accountable and thus need to obey the gospel? No specific age is given in the Bible. And I think it should be obvious that those of us who deal with children on any consistent basis recognize that some mature much faster than others. Some understand the consequences of their choices. Others don't. And so at what point do people generally start understanding? Well, I'm going to give you three illustrations, and I think these may be helpful. For many, many years, even going back to near biblical times, Jewish boys had a bar mitzvah. And somebody said, well, you mean that's a little Jewish practice? It is, because the word bar mitzvah means son of the law. It's about 13 years of age when these little boys now are to start reading the law publicly. They become, they go through the ceremony to make them a quote son of the law. You're now responsible for this book and what's in it. A second illustration could be found in Jesus. When he was about 12 years of age, when they went to the city of Jerusalem, he started taking interest in the spiritual activity that was taking place. That didn't mean he hadn't taken notice before, but he's definitely a part of it at this age. In Luke chapter 2, verse 42, And when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem according to the custom of the feast. Verse 49, And he said to them, Why did you seek me? Do you not know that I must be about my father's business? And so at age 12, he would say to Joseph and Mary, Do you not know that this is now something that I need to take on as a part of my life? So you've got 13, you've got 12. And in reading some background, I thought there was a person made a really good point. And that is, at puberty comes the consciousness of impulses and desires. Those things wake up in the child and thus the understanding of their choices. I should be doing this and I should not be doing that. I can't give you a specific age at which a child now understands the choices I am making are right or wrong. And I know what I'm doing. I'm making my own choices. But at that age, once that child understands, I know what the Bible tells me to do. And I know what I need to do. And I am going to do it. And I'm not going to let anybody persuade me otherwise. That's the reason why sometimes young children will come up and they'll say, I think I need to become a Christian. I'll ask the question, well, let me, let me see, do you understand why you need to become a Christian? And one of the first things I talk about is sin. And the reason to talk about sin is because if they don't understand what sin is and they don't understand the guilt, they're not ready. On the other hand, if they come up and they start telling me, I know I have sin in my life and I don't want to go to hell. I don't want to go to torment. I know they understand what they're trying to talk about. And then it's it's their choice. 
It's their opportunity to say, that's what I need to do to become a Christian. And that may not be the, the simplest answer, but I've tried to answer it from biblical perspective. The second question. Must one make restitution before he can be forgiven? Here's someone who says, I want to repent and I want to be restored to faithfulness. Am I required to restore what I've taken? Well, let me take you through a very simple view of what the Bible says about restitution. I think it's very clear. If you go to Exodus chapter 22, and I want to point out to you, you can start all of Exodus 22, and you'll see the point I'm trying to make. I'm just going to draw attention to verses 1 through 5. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and slaughters it or sells it, notice now, he's stolen it and he's converted it to something different, he shall restore five oxen for an ox, four sheep for a sheep. If a thief is found breaking in and he's struck so he dies, there shall be no guilt for bloodshed. If the sun has risen on him, there shall be guilt for his bloodshed. He should make full restitution. If he has nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. If the theft is certainly found alive in his hand, whether it is an ox or a donkey or a sheep, he shall restore double. If a man causes a field or a vineyard to be grazed and let his animal loose and it feeds in another man's field, he shall make restitution from the best of his own field. And the best of his own vineyard. I don't know if y'all have observed that. But what he's saying is. If you take or you convert something that belongs to someone else. You've got to make it right. And in fact. If you've converted. You've got to pay five or four times as much. If you still have it in your hand. You've got to pay double. The restitution there is a part of God's Old Testament law. But someone says, that's person to person. But is there a sense in which I could take something from God and convert it and not give God his due? Listen to Leviticus chapter 5, verses 15 and 16. If a person commits a trespass and sins unintentionally in regard to the holy things of the Lord, then he shall bring to the Lord as his trespass offering a ram without blemish from the flock with a valuation of shekels of silver according to the shekel of the sanctuary and a trespassing one. And he shall make restitution for the harm that he has done in regard to the holy thing. You mean that if I'm supposed to offer a sacrifice and I unintentionally use it for something else, then God expects me to restore? He said he shall add one-fifth to it, give it to the priest. The priest shall make atonement for him with the ram of the trespass offering, and it shall be forgiven him. Drop down to verse 14. And if a man eats the holy thing unintentionally, he shall restore a holy offering to the priest and add one-fifth to it. Several years ago, went to visit a man who was going to hold a gospel meeting here. In fact, it's not just been several. It's been many, many years ago. And uh, we were going to record a television commercial 
for him and we went and sat down and the congregation where he was at was in an upheaval. One of the men of their congregation had stolen the contribution money for weeks all on end. He'd always ask, stand at the back, say, I'm going to carry the money up to the nursery. And what would happen is they would notice when he was there, the contribution was a whole lot more. And come to find out what he would do, he'd take his hand, stick in the money, stick the cash in his pocket, and did so for a long time. They met with the man and talked with him, and after doing so, he admitted his guilt, he admitted what he had taken, and the elder said, don't you think it would be right and appropriate that you pay it back? He had just bought a brand new RV. His wife said, we ain't giving it back. That was her response. We're not giving it back. Can you be forgiven if you take what belongs to the Lord and you use it for yourself and you say, I'm not giving it back? Numbers chapter 5, verses 7 and 8 Then he shall make confession of the sin which he has committed. He shall make restitution for his trespass in full, plus one-fifth of it, and give it to the one whom he has wronged. Or you can go to Proverbs chapter 6, verses 30 and 31. People do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy himself when he's starving. Yet if he is found, he must restore sevenfold. He shall have to give up all the substance of his house. You know, if you steal, even if you're stealing for what you think is the right reason, and you're caught in it, you've got to make restitution. Several years ago, I was having a discussion with some folks who did not believe that if you repented, you had to make correction. We were talking about marriage, divorce, and remarriage. And the question arose is, if I get involved in an unscriptural marriage, do I have to leave the person I should not be married to? I said, let's go to Ezekiel chapter 33. Let's look at verses 14 through 16. Again, when I shall say to the wicked, you shall surely die if he turns from his sin and does what is lawful and right. If the wicked restores the pledge, gives back what he has stolen walks in the statutes of life without committing iniquity, he shall surely live and shall not die. None of the sins which he has committed shall be remembered against him. He has done what is lawful and right. He shall surely live. And I ask the question, if the wicked restores the pledge, he gives back what he has pledged to give, what if he doesn't give it back? Well, he can't be forgiven. What if he takes what is stolen? You, you come and you steal my um, car and you say, okay, I want to be forgiven. Well, you've got to give my car back. You see, the idea of restitution goes with repentance. Forgiveness is based upon repentance. You remember Luke 17, 3, Take heed to yourselves. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. Can a person genuinely repent and not make restitution? Repentance is something you can see. You remember Jonah was to go to the great city of Nineveh and to preach against it, tell them to repent, or in 40 days Nineveh would be overthrown. 
And it says in Jonah 3 verse 10, Then God saw their works. It's something that could be observed, something seen. If one is unwilling to make restitution, then their sorrow is likely not godly sorrow, but worldly sorrow, because godly sorrow produces repentance. 2 Corinthians 7 and verse 10, For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted. But the sorrow of the world produces death. Now, these questions have touched on things necessary for salvation. That's the reason why I put these two questions together because the first question to ask, basically, whether you are a young person or whatever age, when am I accountable for God? When I learn the difference between right and wrong and I know what I need to do, now I am obligated to do it. You may be a young person here tonight and you may say, you're talking to me. You're saying that if I know what I need to do, I need to do it. And that's exactly right. But you don't have to be 12, 13, 23, 43, or 83. If you know what you need to do, you don't need to be waiting around. You don't need to be uh, waiting for some opportunity that's going to be better because there will never be a better opportunity than right now, and there may not be another opportunity. Now, the question for each of us is, do I know what I must do in order to be right with God? And if you've got problems with regards to things that you've done wrong, you need to correct those. If you've told a lie, you need to go back and correct that lie. If you have taken something that doesn't belong to you, you need to give it back. And someone says, well, I can't give back everything. There's some things you can't restore. But do you know one thing I saw in studying the Old Testament passages? That if a man had stolen something, he had converted it to something else, he used it some other way, there was a way for him to make things right. There's a way to make things right. When am I going to do what I know I must? Is it going to be tonight? Or will it not? We're going to sing the song, Oh, why not tonight? If you need to respond, why not come as we gather, stand, and sing?